Welcome again. My name's Neil. If I don't know you, I'm one of the leaders at Liberty Church. And when you join us this afternoon, we're starting a new series looking at a letter in the New Testament called 1 Peter. It's the first letter sent by one of Jesus' disciples, one of Jesus' first disciples, Peter. And if you've got a Bible, we're going to read a couple of verses this afternoon. If you've got one of our church Bibles, one of the black Bibles, it's page 1014. If you haven't got a Bible, if you don't own one, you can take that Bible with you. That's uh, another gift that we can give you and you can take that home. We've got plenty to give away. I'm going to read just the first two verses of 1 Peter chapter 1. If you were here last week, I think we read about 40 verses. We're going short this week. We're doing two verses, so hopefully you can stay tuned in for two verses. If you can't, then we've got problems. Um, here we go. 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. I'm going to pray before we go any further. Father, we thank you for all of the truths that we've already sung and confessed this afternoon. And Father, as we again just uh, surround ourselves with your truth now, we gather around your truth, we ask that you would continue to reveal yourself to us. Holy Spirit, lead us towards truth. Lord Jesus, you say that your word is living, it is active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. So by your Spirit, change us this afternoon. Transform us, we pray, by your truth. Thank you, you are present here, Holy Spirit, right now. Thank you, Holy Spirit, and we pray that you would do a work in us that is pleasing to the Father. In Jesus' name, amen. This letter, folks, was written 2,000 years ago in 64 AD by, you've guessed it, Peter. Thank you, Mike. Michael's heard a, a sermon on Peter. Guys, if we're struggling with who's written a letter. Actually, there is some debate around whether it was Peter or not. Apparently, the grammar was was too good for Peter. Like, that is a... I usually get the opposite thing. When I write letters, people might wonder, oh, Neil's not written that because the grammar's... Well, anyway, he's, he did write it. He did actually write it. It's his work. Uh, we see that as we go through. We're going to spend seven weeks in this letter. And it's going to be really clear that this is from one of Jesus' disciples. And we're going to hear more about him, more about the character, the person of Peter as we go on. And we see in these first couple of verses who he's writing to. He calls them elect exiles. Keep hold of that word elect for a minute. And let's just kind of just see what he means by exiles. When we think of exiles, maybe we think of political exiles, people who've been sent out of a country. And in a sense, he's saying the same thing. He tells us exactly where these people are. I'll say them again because I've been rehearsing these words over and over this week. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. There we go. Thank you. Um, And these were the churches that were spread right across Uh, what is modern day Turkey, and this was the early church, and they felt like they were exiles. Some of them were born where they were found, but they felt, because of their faith in Jesus, they felt different. Now, in Liverpool, we get a sense maybe of what this feels like recently. If you think of the hundreds of Afghan refugees who've landed in Liverpool and received a wonderful welcome from us scouts, they have a sense of feeling what it is to be an exile. Living in a place that just doesn't feel quite at home. That's what Peter's describing here. The church are living in a way where it just feels like they're not at home. 
And the reason that they feel like this is because they are living in a hostile world, a world that is hostile to the Christian faith. And there is a sense in which they're struggling with it. And so Peter writes to them to encourage them to give them hope in hostility. You see, after Jesus dies on a cross, he resurrects. The church explodes out of Jerusalem. It starts in Jerusalem and is pushed out because of persecution. Christians are opposed by the Roman Empire. People think as they look at the Christians and they see them gathering for strange feasts and singing strange songs and loving people in strange ways, calling each other brother and sister and things like that. They, they think that Christianity is a cult. Rumours spread about the Christian church. The government oppressed them. They feel marginalised. And these early Christians find it hard to hide their faith because they were so different. They lived in counterculture ways. Jesus said before he resurrected, he said that the church would be like a city on a hill. A city on a hill can't hide itself. It's there, you see it. He said that they were to be like light in the darkness. They're there to be seen. And that's what the early church were like. They were visible. They lived in different ways and they stood out in the Roman Empire. And that made their day-to-day reality hard. Because they were pushed against. They were oppressed. People didn't like what they were doing. It created tension in conversations and relationships and, and work agreements much like it does today. If you're a Christian here this afternoon, you feel some of that. This world is not an easy world to live in if you are a Christian. And it is as if Peter is writing to a church who are struggling to find hope in the midst of hostility and are coming to the point of asking themselves this question. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? Is this new faith which I've found, is following Jesus worth it? And I suspect every one of us who is a believer here this afternoon has asked the same question. Is it worth it? And it gets hard when you feel opposition. When you feel all the nerves bubbling up inside you. When you know that conversation is coming in work. Is it worth it? And if you're not a Christian here this afternoon, I suspect you've asked the same question. When you look at the Christian faith, when you look at your friends who are Christian, I suspect you've asked the same question. Is it worth it? Is it worth me following Jesus? Or is the cost too much? And in these first two verses of Peter's letter, we hear the answer. It is. It is worth it. Even though we feel the tension of living in the world, even though you might have questions about putting your faith in Jesus, Peter would encourage us, it is worth it. And the first reason he gives us is this. It is worth following Jesus. It is worth giving your life to Jesus. It is worth Feeling the tension of living in a world that opposes you because, firstly, God has chosen you. If you are in a relationship with God, 
God has chosen you to be his. That's what the word, word elect means. We read that in the first couple of lines. Those who are elect exiles, Christians are, are God's elect. And that just means that God has chosen us. Like think of what we do. Hopefully what most of us do when we go to uh, election times, we go and we elect our prime minister or elect our counsellor. We're choosing someone to be our representative. And Christians are God's elect. We are chosen by God. We are chosen to be part of his family. We are chosen to receive eternal life. And I just want us just to sit in that truth for a moment that we are chosen by God. Because that is a profound truth. A profound truth that probably we get so used to that it wears off on us. If you are a Christian, you have been chosen by God. Now all of us probably have got experiences of being chosen or not chosen by someone. And I want us just to think about what, what it feels like when we are chosen. Like my story in secondary school was not being chosen. If you see me play football, you'll know why. In the school that I grew up in, everyone played football at, at lunchtime. You didn't have a choice. If there was a Dungeons and Dragons group, I would have been there, but there wasn't one. So everyone had to play football. I've got an amen at the back there. You, I did, there we go. Well, I didn't have it in my school. And so I had to play football, but I couldn't. And obviously the guys knew this. And so what would happen is we picked teams. The captains would stand out here and you can see where this is going. Even my own brother would pick me last. I would never get chosen. My sister probably even picked me last. And she, she's worth a, worse at football than me. So my growing up, I had a feeling of what it is not to be chosen. But all of us probably have an experience where we know the delight and the joy and the satisfaction of being chosen. Take that joy and amplify it a million billion times. See, being chosen by God isn't like being chosen by the captain of the football team. It's being chosen by God. God who is holy, God who is perfect, God who is the creator of the universe, God who is peace, who is joy, who is love. Not, not God who, who loves, but God who is love and peace and joy. Folks, when we understand who God is, we should want to make our, life, our lives ambition. To be chosen by him. And if you are a Christian. You have been. He's chosen you. And before we get on our high horses. Let's just be clear why he's chosen you. He has not chosen you. Based on your merit. He is not based on you. Because he's looked at you and thought. Well Josh is a good guy. Yeah I'll, I'll have him. He's not picked us based on our goodness. He's not picked us based on our reputation he has chosen us on the grounds of his love and get this he chose you knowing how much you would show yourself not to be worthy of his choosing that's what that word foreknowledge means see that there in verse two we are god's elect it is in his foreknowledge. He knew how bad that we would be, and yet he still chose us. If you are a Christian, it should regularly cross your mind, and you should regularly ask your question, why me? Really, God, like, why me? Why have you chosen me? We all know enough about ourselves to know that God has not chosen us based on our performance. Hopefully, we all know that. Hopefully, none of us are sitting there thinking, well, well, actually, Think he, no, if we're honest with ourselves, we know that God will not choose us based on our performance. He chooses us based on his love. Here's a helpful exercise to do just to help you ground this reality. I did this this week. 
list out all of the things that are true in your life that would help you see why God wouldn't choose you. Even just in the last week, the things that you've done, the things that you've said, the things that you haven't said, which prove to you that God has not chosen you based on your merit, on your goodness, on your reputation. I sat down and did it just to help us ground it this afternoon. And and I realized this week I've been proud. I've been arrogant. I've been selfish. I've been lustful. I've been angry. I've been bitter. I've been jealous. I've been resentful. I've been entitled. I've been a liar. I have fallen so far from the holy, perfect character of God. Why would he choose me? Because he loves me. And he loves you. And don't think that he's chosen you and now he's stuck with you. His foreknowledge means that he knows how you will be in the future. The Bible says that when we are his, when God chooses us, he's not fed up with us. He's not disappointed with us. He's delighted in us. He engages with us like a perfect father would engage with their son or daughter. He loves you. Because he loves us, he will hold nothing back from us that is for our good, even his own soul. So in the hopelessness of life, when we ask ourselves the question, which I'm sure many of us do, is it worth it? Is it worth following Jesus? Know that it is because no one has shown you love like God has shown you. If you're not a Christian here this afternoon, you might be listening to that thing, well, that sounds great. Like to have a God who would engage with me, that, that sounds great, but why, ha- why hasn't he shown me? Why, isn't, why hasn't he chosen me? Why hasn't he elected me? Well, the gospel, the, the, the good news of Jesus, that there is forgiveness for our sin, there is eternal life with God and his people, the gospel is held out to everyone. And you just need to have faith to believe it, to receive it. You need to have faith to come to the end of yourself and admit that you are not God and Jesus is and receive him. And if you're sitting there this afternoon thinking, okay, but but I don't have enough faith, ask for it. He's a good God and a good father and he will give it. God has chosen us. Secondly, we see God is changing us. These are all reasons why we should come to the answer, yes, it is worth it. Firstly, because God has chosen us. Secondly, because he is changing us. When we come into a relationship with God, he changes us. That big word in verse two, sanctification of the spirit. Sanctification means to be changed, to be made holy. So when we come into a relationship with God through faith in Jesus, God promises to change us. Now I know all of us, all of us resist change a little bit. Like, we all like to think that we will be good with change, but I think all of us struggle with it in some way. But the sanctification, this change that Peter talks about here, the change that is true in the life of every Christian, this is good change. In fact, it is the best type of change. And it is a change that we would all want. Again, sanctification means to be made holy. It is a movement away from one person towards another person. It is a movement away from your old life of sin towards Jesus, who is holy. If you've spent any time around liberty, I hope, and I'm sure you have, I hope that you've kind of heard these kind of phrases. It's okay to not be okay. Or come as you are. 
we talk about ourselves being broken sinners. That's who we are. We're holding on to Jesus. Like if you're coming into the life of liberty, you don't need to pretend. You don't need to put up a facade. You don't need to, to live this, this holy life and pretend that you're perfect. We know that you're not because we're not. And so liberty is, by the grace of God, a place where you can just be yourself. Be honest with yourself. Be honest with God. Be honest with, your, uh, uh, with one another. We talk about this place, this gathering, this people being a beautiful mess. That's what we are. That sounds a bit harsh, but that is what we are. Like I have a picture of, um, you've heard of Chernobyl, right? So back in 1989, there was a, a, a nuclear disaster in, it's in Ukraine, isn't it? Uh, uh, the, the nuclear reactor exploded. Everyone from the city was evacuated and it became a no-go zone for years. And only recently in the last few years have documentary makers and uh, photographers and filmmakers and artists and scientists been allowed to go back in and see what it's like. And what you see as you go in, and it's fascinating to see, is devastation everywhere. Like there are still buildings which are, are just as they were left after the explosion. Half of the building hanging off. There are, you can just see people have literally just let go of what they were holding on to and ran away to try and get away as fast as they could. There's brokenness, there's devastation everywhere. But what is beautiful is to see how nature's taken over. Have you seen any of these photos? Trees popping up in the middle of houses. Vines wrapping themselves around lampposts. It looks like a scene out of a, just a, a, you know, a bit of a science fiction movie, doesn't it? But what you see is beauty in the mess. Folks, that is who we are, right? If we're Christians, we don't pretend that we're perfect. We don't pretend that we're made. We don't pr- pretend that we've kind of arrived. Our lives are broken. Our lives are messy. We still contend with sin. God and his grace is changing us. And every day, every week, every year, as we grow in our faith, there are little shoots of life popping up. Beautiful parts of God's work in his life springing and and bringing about new life and new growth in our lives. We are a beautiful mess, folks, but Jesus promises not to leave us in that mess. Every day I am walking away from the Neil who lived for sin towards the Neil who lives for Jesus. Every day I am growing to love what Jesus loves, which the Bible says is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I'm growing to love what he loves and growing to hate what he hates. Sin, injustice, oppression, brokenness. And I'm growing to do what Jesus does. So again, in our passage, we see that we're called to walk in obedience to Christ Jesus. We're called to obey him. We're called to listen to what he says in his word and do it. When we find that in here, right? If we want to know what it looks like to obey Jesus, we need to listen to him. And it is in his word that we hear how he wants us to live, the things that he wants us to do and the things that he wants us to leave. And I want to just undo a little bit of work for us because I think some of us, when we come across things in here where we feel like Jesus is calling us to walk one way and we just feel the pull and the tension of us wanting to walk in a different way. When we, when we come across things in here where, where we see really clearly the world is saying go this way but Jesus is saying go in that way. I want us just to undo a bit of work of thinking that Jesus is that grumpy teacher who is just telling us do this. You've got to do this. This is, this is what you've got to do or else. That isn't God at all. 
God is not a grumpy old man or a grumpy teacher who just wants us to do what we are told. Do you know how the Bible describes God's relationship towards us? As a good shepherd with his sheep. Okay, here's my guilty pleasure. Some of you will connect with this. Beth will connect with this. When I was younger, I used to like to waste my time at home. Not watching what all the other kids watched on telly, but watching one man and his dog. Any lovers? Just me and you, Beth. One man and his dog. Some of you haven't got a clue what I'm talking about, but once you've heard it, you will be onto this, I guarantee you. The principle is this. You get a load of shepherds in a field with their dogs, with a load of sheep, and the aim of the game is to try and get the sheep in the pen. But you've got to go through all these different gates and all these different obstacle courses, and, and it's hard work. Like it, sound, it sounds easy, but it is really hard. You've got your dog, a whistle, they're over there, like just hundreds of meters away. But it works, it's great entertainment, it's great telly. Honestly, you really enjoy it if you probably, it's probably on YouTube now, they probably don't make it on the telly. But I loved it. And here's the thing, why, why do the sheep do what the shepherds tells them to do? Well, there is a sense in which they're just going to listen to the whistle and, and get moved by the dog. But really, they listen to what the shepherd is telling them to do because he always leads them to something good. The shepherd is always moving the sheep from, from one type of pasture to a better type of pasture to a greener bit of field, away from a barren bit of field where they've chomped and they've eaten it all up, to a better bit of field, which is going to be good for them. And so every time the shepherd says go, they will go because he has never, ever taken them somewhere that is bad for them. And God is exactly the same with us. When he calls us to walk in obedience, even when we feel like, this just doesn't feel right, God. When you feel that tension, look back and see, has he ever led you somewhere that isn't good for you? Has the grass ever been not as green as what you had before? We walk in obedience to Jesus because he always leads us to something better. So when we feel like life feels like hopelessness, when we feel the pressure to close our ears to Jesus and listen to our heart or listen to the world or listen to whoever it is, Know that it is worth following Jesus because he only has what is good for us. God chooses us, he changes us, and finally he cleanses us. Those last few words in verse 2 there, we are called for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Like blood. Sprinkling with his blood might feel like a bit of a strange concept to us. Um, it might feel a little bit weird that Peter would say that the church there, 2,000 years ago, are sprinkled with Christ Jesus' blood. Well, the churches that Peter's writing to, he's writing to churches which are full of people with uh, non-Jewish heritage and those with Jewish heritage. And those with Jewish heritage would know exactly what he's talking about. Like if you read the Old Testament, you just see blood everywhere. Like blood is one of these themes that runs through right from the first few pages of the Bible all the way through the Old Testament. And this specific action of God's people being sprinkled with blood, you see in three places in the Old Testament. In the first instance, and some of you might know the story, the story of the Exodus of Moses leading God's people out of Egypt. And as they get to the foot of Mount Sinai, God makes a promise with his, with his people. He says, I'm going to be your God, you're going to be my people. And the way he seals this promise is by having Moses sacrifice an animal and the people being sprinkled with blood, like literally, the blood of this animal. You can imagine them like 
covered in this blood, specks of blood all over them. And it was a way of God marking these people to be his people. The second place you see it is when the priests were ordained. So Aaron was the first priest. And again, an animal was sacrificed and Aaron was sprinkled with blood to show him coming into this role as a priest. Now, Peter could be talking in those terms. But what's interesting, and we'll get here in a few weeks, is as you get uh, to chapter two of Peter's letter, you see that, that we are God's chosen people. We're brought into the promise of God and we are God's priests. He calls us a royal priesthood. These are works that are already done. We're already called into the promise of God. We're already a, a royal priesthood. But look at how Peter talks in verse two. He talks about sprinkling with his blood. That's an active word. He's not talking about something that's happened. He's not talking about past tense. He's talking about God's people right now being sprinkled with the blood of Christ Jesus. Which brings us to the third time in the Old Testament that you see this picture of God's people being sprinkled. And it's this. If there was someone amongst God's people who had a contagious skin disease, they would be taken outside of the community. They would be quarantined, like not unlike... What we've experienced the last few years, right? If someone has coronavirus, we quarantine. We keep them away from community. We isolate. And it was the same back then. You'd be taken out of God's community and only when the the disease had gone would you be brought out and the priest would sacrifice an animal and sprinkle you with the blood. Now just imagine that you're there in your, I don't know, your white tunic and you're finally clean from this disease and then you're covered in blood. It was messy. But that's the whole point. It was deliberate. As you walked back into the community of God's people, visibly, people could see that you had been cleansed. People could see that the disease that you had was now gone because you were marked with this blood. The whole point of it being such a a kind of visual uh, demonstration was so that people could see that you are now cleansed and you are now welcome to come back into the presence of God and his What on earth has that got to do with the churches that Peter's writing to and to us here at Liberty Church? Well, if you know much of your Bible, you will know that everything in the Old Testament points towards Jesus. All of the sacrifice, all of the blood, all of the, all of the talk of cleansing, all of the talk of being welcomed into the presence of God and his people is pointing towards Jesus and specifically pointing towards the cross. Jesus dies on the cross, his blood is shed, and it is as if those who God has chosen, his elect, are sprinkled with his blood. Our sin disease, the thing that made us unclean, the thing that kept us outside of the presence of God and having good community with God's people, at the cross, God's people are sprinkled with his blood as a visible, tangible reminder that we have been forgiven of our sin and we have been cleansed by the finished work of the cross and our sin has been removed. That's what the picture is reminding Peter's churches of. They are marked with the finished work of the cross. And it's not as if at the cross our our sin kind of just kind of disappears. It moves off of us onto Jesus. He takes our sin. He becomes the sacrificial lamb. 
He takes the punishment for our sin. And as he rises again three days later, he opens the door to eternal life with him and his people. And as God's people are sprinkled with his blood, we are shown to be cleansed and we are shown to be welcome. Peter is saying to the churches that he's writing to, folks, you have been forgiven from the sin that you're, you're engaging in now. You've been cleansed from it and you're welcome. You're welcome in the presence of God. You're welcome in the presence of God's people. That phrase, sprinkling with the blood of Christ Jesus, it is as if Jesus is coming through the page and saying to his people, come in. Come in. I know you've been battling with sin this week. Come in. You're marked with my blood. I know you're tired. I know you're weary. Come in. I've got rest for you. You're sprinkled with my blood. You're mine. I know you feel the brokenness of this world come in. I feel it too. I know you're longing for me to return or to come with me. Come in. I'm here. I know you feel hopeless in a world of hostility. As you try and live out your faith, it's okay. Come in. I'm with you. Peter wants the churches to hear that. Wants them to be encouraged that God has chosen them, he's changing them, and he is reminding them of the cleansing work of the cross. He wants them to be convinced that the Christian life is worth it. And if you're struggling, still struggling to believe that, hear Peter's closing prayer in this greeting. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. I love that. To not make grace and peace be given to you, what does he say? Be multiplied to you. Grace upon grace, upon grace, upon grace, peace upon peace, upon peace, upon peace. That's what Peter's saying. Have as much of it as you can take. God's got so much to give you. Even when you think his grace has run out, even when you think his peace has run out, Peter's saying, I want it to be multiplied to you. I want you to be convinced of the grace of God, which is his free gift towards us. He freely gives his peace towards us. He freely saves us. He freely brings us into his, into his presence. Peter's calling them to be reminded, you've been chosen by God, you've been changed, you've been cleansed. That is the grace of God, not because of anything that you have done, but because he loves you. And as you know that, know his peace. If you're not a Christian, the peace that you so desperately crave in this broken world, in this anxious world, it is offered to you freely. God graciously is holding it out to you. I plead with you to receive it. In that question, is it worth it? Is it worth following Jesus when it feels so hard? Is it worth taking the decision to follow Jesus when it looks like there's so much to lose? Peter wants the churches and God by his spirit wants us to be convinced. It is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a gracious God. We've done nothing 
nothing to deserve your favour and your goodness towards us. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that you freely give it. Father, for those of us who are yours, who you would call your children, we marvel at the fact that you would choose us. You would elect us in full knowledge, knowing how much we would prove ourselves to be unworthy. Father, we thank you for how this helps us to see that you are a God of love. And Father, we thank you that even though we still wrestle with sin and the brokenness of this world and we struggle so much day after day, we thank you that you are changing us. You are moving us to be less and less like the, the man and woman that we were who craved sin and lived for sin and more and more to be like your perfect son, Jesus. We thank you that you allow us to come in as we are, but you refuse to keep us like that, constantly changing us. And one day you will perfect us. Father, we thank you as well that you have made a way for us to be cleansed from our sin. Welcome back into your presence and into the community of your people. We thank you that right now we are marked by that. And so where there is guilt and shame from sin, remind us about the finished work of the cross. Help us to see that we are marked with your blood, which has cleansed us. We are already forgiven. Help us to know the welcome that you extend to us by your spirit. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are here now. Help us as we continue to respond, we pray in Jesus' name.